Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. When you think of God and try to sum up His image in words, what words come to your mind first? Love. Patience, understanding. These types of words probably come to mind first. Of course, these are all true adjectives. But when we read the Bible, we also come across scriptures that display different images of God as well. God can be portrayed as an angry God who curses those who disobey him. When we read these scriptures, we can't help but to be startled and alert. During the time of the Exodus, the 40 years the Israelites were in the desert, they were filled with resentment and complaints. As Moses went up to Mount Sinai to meet God, they could no longer wait for him and made for themselves a golden calf to serve as an idol. God becomes angry and strikes them and kills 3,000 Israelites. Afterwards, he says to Moses to take the people and go to the land of Canaan, the promised land. God tells Moses he will send an angel before Moses. To help lead them into the promised land, and continues to tell him that God will not be with them, for they are stiff necked people. Now Moses had to lead these people who were disloyal and resentful towards God to the promised land that God had showed them. Yet after hearing the words from God that he would no longer be with them, what did Moses decide to do? To understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know at His right hand stands one who is my Savior. I take Him at His word and Christ died to save me, this I read. And in my heart I find a need of Him to be my Savior. That He will leave His place on high and come for sinful.
Chapter 33, verse 1-3, it states, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God told him to lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan. He tells him that he will send an angel in front of them to chase out the people already living there. Yet he tells them something strange, which is that he will not go with them. What does this mean? This means that God promised Abraham that he will give that land to his descendants, so therefore will keep that promise. However, he cannot stand to see the people's disobedience. This is because surely he would have had to punish them along the way. Moses answers him in this way, as written in Exodus chapter 33 verse 12 to 13 and 15. 
Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, I have found favor in your sight. Please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses tells God that unless God can go with them, he will not go without him. Even though it is the promised land that they were hoping for all that time, he states that he still will not go without God. He also says something that is very important. In verse 16 he states, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says that if God does not go with them, how would anyone know that they were the chosen people of God? What then can differentiate them from anyone else who lives on the earth? Moses knew that going into the land of Canaan was not as important as being blessed as children of God. Even though it is a place he had always dreamed of entering, and despite the fact he got everything that he had ever wanted, if God was not going to be with them, he is saying all is worthless, as there is nothing more important than being together with the Lord.
is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Struggle for Love, Part 1, based on Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 through 35. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Tim Keller. I'm going to read Genesis 29, verses 15 to 35. And Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all of the people of the place and gave a feast, but when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant, and when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. 
Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. And Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. Rachel was barren. And Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has been seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he named him Levi. He was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. This is God's word. We're moving through the life of Jacob, uh, that very ancient figure in the book of Genesis, and yet an incredibly modern figure. Uh, Jacob is a man with an inner vacuum, an inner emptiness. Jacob's a man with, uh, uh, as we're going to see a little more, uh, and reasons why, an inner sense of uh, emptiness, and he's desperate for other people's affirmation, uh, other people's blessing, uh, for success, for approval, and so on. In Genesis 28, Jacob had his first encounter, though, with God, a personal encounter. And he enters into a personal covenant relationship with God in chapter 28. But here in 29, we see something very instructive for us all, that though he's begun his relationship with God, that does not immediately create a remedy, a full remedy, for his inner emptiness. Self-discovery, self-knowledge, inner emptiness, these things are not remedied quickly even by a first-time encounter with God. And so what we see is part of the process of inner transformation still entails tremendous mistakes and disasters, even after he's had this relationship begun with God. And this, today, we see one more family disaster. And yet, God is clearly, as we're going to see, at work in not only Jacob's life, but the, life, the lives of those around him. The theme today, the theme of this passage is that people with an inner emptiness give themselves to a hope. Very often they give themselves to a hope, and that is a hope for what we'll call one true love. People with an inner emptiness have a tendency to give themselves to the hope that out there somewhere there's that right person, that he or that she that's going to somehow make my life right, going to fix it. But what we're going to see here is three things. First of all, we're going to see what is behind that hope for one true love. Then secondly, we're going to see the disillusionment that generally accompanies that hope for one true love. And then lastly, what will actually fulfill that hope? What's behind the hope? What usually disillusionment generally accompanies the hope? And what will ultimately fulfill it? So number one, we see, first of all, what lies behind this hope for one true love? Uh, we see it when we take a look at the very beginning and see how uh, Jacob got into the situation. Uh, it starts off, the passage starts off with Laban saying, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now let's give the context. If you haven't been here with us, let me get you up to date. Uh, Jacob's grandfather, Abram. God came to Abram and said to him, I'm going to save the world through your family. 
out of your descendants will come one, a Messiah, who is going to deal with sin and death. But what that means is that in every generation of Abram's family, one child will be the bearer of the messianic seed. One child, the messianic strain. One child will be the one that God walks with and blesses and who passes the faith on to the next generation. And we saw back in chapter 25 and 27 that Jacob is the one in that generation. That God, though Jacob is the second of two boys, he's the younger son, uh, God had said through a prophecy, the elder will serve the younger. Jacob's the one. But Isaac, his father, loved Esau, his older brother, preferred Esau, and Jacob lived, grew up shunted, rejected, second best, resentful. And finally, we saw that what Jacob at one point does is when his father is very old and very blind and near death, Jacob dresses up as Esau and fools his blind father into giving him, Jacob, the deathbed blessing of the firstborn. And as a result, Esau, his brother, is furious with him, vows to kill him, and Jacob has to run for his life, and everything has fallen apart now. Jacob has no family to be the head of. He has no inheritance. He has no money. He's penniless. That's the point here in the beginning. And he runs far away just to survive, to be with the relatives of his mother, who he will never see again, the only woman, the only person in the world that loves him. And now he's starting to work. He's tending the flocks of his uncle Laban. And Laban comes to him and says, look, let's, have, let's negotiate a contract. Uh, what should your salary be? You know, you're penniless, but you're working for me, fine. Let's come up with a negotiation. And when Jacob answers Laban in verses 16, 17, 18, now we see how Jacob is coping with the screw-up of his life, with the, with the mess of his life, with the ruins that his life is in. How is he dealing with the unhappiness? How is he dealing with all the hopes that have been dashed? How is he dealing with that inner emptiness now? And we see it immediately when he says, I'll tell you what my wages should be. I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, immediately we see a few things quickly. First of all, we know from verse 17 that Rachel is beautiful, absolutely stunning, sexually attractive, beautiful. When it says she's lovely in form, it's a word for, Hebrew word for her figure. So it's talking about her sexual attractiveness. The beautiful word probably has more to do with her face. She was stunning. But secondly, we see that Jacob is now absolutely in love with her because when he negotiates a price, he says, I'll work seven years. Now, we know from both archaeology and from history that uh, 30 to 40 shekels was a normal price that a suitor paid the family of a bride, of someone he wanted to marry. But if you add this up, uh, one and a half shekels is the normal going wage per month of a typical laborer, and therefore, what is Jacob offering? He's not negotiating. He's offering an exorbitant sum. He's offering an enormous sum, which means he's utterly out of his head with love. I mean, he's not, he's not pushing a bar. He's not, you know, driving for a hard bargain. Absolutely not. And he's, it, we, we see that the seven years went by, it says. You know, it was only a few days. He's so much in love. But it's actually verse 21 that we would ordinarily miss, I think, that really shows us just how deep in Jacob is here. It says, and then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Now, Robert Alter, who is the, a Jewish scholar and probably the leading uh, expert in Hebrew narrative right now, 
Robert Alter in his commentary on Genesis says what's, that this verse, and it's not that easy to see in the English, it's actually not that easy to see for us modern people, that this verse has been a problem for Jewish rabbinical commentators for centuries. And the reason is because it's utterly out of character. It's utterly beyond what was customary. It's utterly indiscreet. What he's literally saying is, my time is completed, give me my wife, I want to have sex with her. And it was just so indiscreet for the time, it was so out of character for the, and customary. He says that for centuries, Jewish rabbis have been trying to explain or justify the baldness, the brusqueness, the crassness, the grossness of it. But what Robert Alter says, it was very clear, is the narrator is telling us something very simple. Here is a man who is emotionally and sexually overwhelmed with longing for Rachel. He's overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing for her. He will do anything for her. Now, what do we see? Why is he like this? And the answer is, this is how, this is how he's dealing with the failure of his life. He's looking at her and saying, oh, my word, I don't have, you know, never got my father's blessing. Now I've lost my mother. I'm out here. Everything in my life has fallen apart. But Rachel, oh, the most beautiful woman in the, in the whole territory. If I got her, if she was my wife, Finally, something in my life would be going right. Finally, something, finally would be something about my life that would be worth it. Something that, there would be finally something about me that would be worth it. Finally, I'd be worth something. My life would be worth something. It would fix it. It would begin to make amends. This will finally fix my life. This will fill that hole. That's what he's doing. Now, do you say, well, the poor guy, you know, I can see that. I, I've known people like that. Uh, he's sort of an emotional cripple, and uh, you know he gets that way about romance and love. But I don't want to let us off the hook very quickly at all. Uh, Ernest Becker, in uh, his uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, *The Denial of Death*, Ernest Becker, a secular man, an atheist, wrote a book trying to talk about how he believes that being secular. That now the religion, at least amongst the educated and the elite classes of the Western societies, uh, uh, the idea of God is sort of maybe he's there in a general way. You might have a general belief in him. But basically, we live in a secular society. And he says that has had as an impact. He points out that in ancient times, romantic love was seldom the basis for marriage. And even though it was there, modern people load an enormous amount of spiritual freight into finding that right person, into romance and into love. We don't want to admit it. We do not want to admit it. We're sophisticated. We do not want to admit, but Becker, I think, and I'm going to read you a quote here, says, you don't want to admit to what degree that modern people now are making up for the lack of inner spiritual fullness by looking out there saying, I'm going to find that one. See, Becker puts it this way. It's great. Referring to modern secular humanity, he says, we need to feel... We still need to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher self-absorbing meaning, in trust and in gratitude. But if we no longer have God, how are we to do this? And one of the first ways that occurred to the modern person, as Otto Rank saw, was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that we need in our innermost being, hear that? We now look for in the love partner. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want, our feeling, we want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. 
We want to be justified. We want to know our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Now, do you think Becker is overdoing it? This is not a, this is not a religious person talking. Do you think he's overdoing it? He's not. Think. I mean, you know, this week, for example, I'll get back to this. New York Magazine was talking about how are different people dealing with the pressure? How are people dealing in New York with, with the uncertainty and the fear and the, the sort of the sense of meaninglessness that, you know, hovers over so many people waiting for the next, you know, for the other shoe to drop and so on. And one of the things that they mentioned, and this is not my terms, this is in New York Magazine, one of the things they mentioned that people are doing is what they call apocalyptic hookups. Sex with somebody really hot to give me a sense that life still has meaning, that I'm still loved, that things are still okay. Apocalyptic hookups. But that's what, that's what Becker's talking about. He says, it's not just Jacob. Frankly, back in ancient times, it wasn't as, it wasn't as prevalent. But Jacob is doing what we do. What are we going to do? How are we going to get rid of a sense that, there's, that our life doesn't matter? How are we going to get rid of a sense that, in the grand scheme of things, we're not very significant? How are we going to get rid of that sense of nothingness? Love. If I can find that one true love, that one person, then my life will be okay. That's behind, so often, <laughs> this desire for one true love, is that inner emptiness, what Becker calls nothing less than a desire for redemption. So the first thing we see here is what's behind it. But the second thing we see here is the disillusionment that generally accompanies the hope and the, the seeking of one true love. And if you want to see the disillusionment, we see it first by looking at Laban's plot and secondly at Leah's lot. What happens to Jacob through Laban and what happens to Leah through Laban. First of all, Jacob's, uh, Laban's plot. Now let's take a look and see what Laban does to Jacob for a second and we'll see Jacob is, remember, a con artist. Jacob is a deceiver, but in Laban, he's met his match. Because the minute he says, I'll work seven years for Rachel, Laban's little mind goes to work. Because right away, he says, now here's a guy that will do anything. Here's a guy who's vulnerable. Here's a guy who's not even, he's not negotiating for a good price. Here's a man who clearly is at my mercy. Now, the first thing that Laban does Look closely. Jacob says, I'll work for Rachel for seven years. What does what is Laban say? What does Laban say? I'll tell you what Laban doesn't say. He doesn't say, yes. Do you see that? He doesn't say, agreed. He makes an oblique, positive statement. He says, well, it'd be better for you to marry than somebody else. That's not yes. That's not, okay, seven years and you get ready. That's not yes. Jacob wanted it to be yes. Jacob desperately wanted to hear the word yes, so he heard yes. Do you know anything about that? So he works seven years, and the seven years are up, and he says, now it's my time, and, and then the wedding. And, of course, it doesn't take a great deal of historical or archaeological knowledge for you to imagine. The bride is kept heavily veiled all day. First, there's the procession from her home to the place of the ceremony. Then there's the ceremony. Then there's a huge feast that lasts you know, for hours and hours and hours. She's still veiled. That's the custom. And then finally, at night, the groom takes the bride into his tent. And, of course, a couple of things that are kind of common sense. No electric lights. 
Uh, and after hours and hours of drinking, they lie together, and Jacob says, ah, Rachel. But in the morning, he discovers it's Leah that Laban has put in the older sister. And when he runs to Laban and he says, what have you done? Here's the denouement. For years, I always wondered, how did Laban really think he was going to get away with it? Because, see, when Jacob comes back, you see what he says? He says, you've deceived me. You knew what I was working for. Now, what does Laban say? He says, well, the custom here is to have the older girl marry the young, uh, before the younger. But you see, that's a fairly lame legal statement, and there are all kinds of devastating comebacks. Devastating comebacks, fine, but this is still fraud. You didn't tell me about this. You knew what I was working for. This is fraudulent. This is cheating. This is illegal. I'm sure there was laws. I'm certain. You know, why didn't he come back? Why, when Laban says what he says, does Jacob just meekly give in? There's clearly anger when Jacob gets to Laban. Why have you done this? By the way, when he says, what have you done? It's exactly the same thing. God says to Adam and Eve, after their sin, you, why have you deceived me? There's, there's fill, he's filled with fury, but when, what happens is when Le, J, Le, Laban says what he says, next thing you know, Jacob gives in. Why? The why is, literally in the Hebrew, Laban says, well, around here, it's not the custom to put the younger before the older. And you see, let me tell you what happened at that point. <laughs> Suddenly, a spear went through, a flaming spear went into Jacob's conscience and exploded. Maybe he understood the minute he even used the word deceived. He says, why have you deceived me? It's exactly the same word for deceit in Hebrew that Isaac uses to describe what Jacob did to him. And even if maybe the minute the word was out of his mouth, he began to realize it, then when Laban says, around here, literally, all he said was, it's around here, it's not the custom for the younger to be preferred before the older. Suddenly, Jacob would have said and would have known, wait a minute. He's doing to me exactly what I did to my father. In fact, think about it. I reached out in the dark thinking it was somebody it wasn't. Just like my father reached out in the dark, touching somebody, thinking it was somebody it wasn't. In fact, Robert Alter says it's so clear that when he, he quotes an, a medieval rabbi who commented on this passage, passage and imagines Jacob having an angry uh, exchange with Leah the next morning. And Jacob said to her, I called out Rachel in the dark, but you answered, why did you do that to me? And Leah said to him, your father called out Esau in the dark, and you answered, why did you do that to him? And the fury dies on his lips. He's cut to the quick. He's hoisted on his own petard, as we say. And he now knows what it's like to be exploited. He now knows what it's like to be used. He now knows what it's like to be lied to. You see, he's shattered. But that's not all. It's not just his life that's shattered. Now we have Leah.
Soul Gospel Ministry is looking for volunteers in tech editing to ensure the quality of the broadcast and the addition of more encouraging and empowering programs. Volunteer hours are three hours a week, and anyone who's had experience with computer before can participate. And don't worry if you're not familiar with the sound editing program. Heart and Soul will provide basic training in editing. So if anyone is interested in helping out our ministry, please contact us at 602-866-8999. Thank you. There are people who gave up their lives in honor of Christ who gave us our everlasting life. Continued is a story of the many people who endured their life with faith, titled The Voice of the Martyrs. Hello everyone, this is Rhonda Walker with The Voice of the Martyrs. The right of self-defense refers to the right for an unavoidable use of reasonable force, including deadly force, for the purpose of defending against unjust violations or threats against others or one's personal rights in life. That is why self-defense is not punishable by criminal law, nor is anyone held responsible to compensate for damages under most self-defense laws. Perhaps it is natural for a person to fight to defend their rights. No one says that it is wrong to do that, and even the law supports the right of self-defense. But does this standard of the right to defend oneself apply to us Christians? In many cases, we can say that the right of self-defense applies to us as well, because it would just be so unfair if it were not the case. When someone attacks me or my family, threatening my life because I follow Christ, should I resist such attacks and defend myself? There are people who prepare to fight, thinking that we need to defend our own rights. Moreover, there are people who even claim that we need to have all sorts of weapons ready to defend our lives in anticipation of the approaching end days. But when we look back at this program, The Voice of the Martyrs, and at the lives of the martyrs we've shared, and when we look back at Jesus' disciples in the Bible and to Jesus himself who started all these things, could we also come to claim the right of self-defense for ourselves? Jesus was the King of Kings who had all authority in heaven and earth, but he did not wield such authority. Instead, he was arrested by the Jews and handed over to a Gentile, never invoking an act of self-defense. And just like Isaiah 53.7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth, dying on the cross for our sins. But what about Jesus' disciples? During Jesus' time, the word mathes, which means disciple, did not simply mean someone who obtains knowledge. A disciple belonged to the teacher, obtaining all the teacher knew and experienced by practice and theory, following the teacher's philosophy as well as behaviors, becoming exactly like the teacher. In order to be like the teacher, the disciples left their homes to live and eat with the teacher, and they became his servants, living and learning in obedience under the full authority of the teacher. To a stranger who hadn't met the teacher, 
a disciple had to wholly and exactly impart to them what the teacher taught, in the same way they had been taught. After Jesus' ascension, Jesus' disciples went on to share about their teacher, Jesus. The disciples witnessed Jesus Christ through their words, their actions, and their lives. Even more amazing was that the disciples didn't only follow the example of Jesus' life, they also followed Jesus in his death. Today, in the Voice of the Martyrs, we share about the end of the disciples who followed in Jesus' footsteps. There are many stories regarding the exact ways and locations on how and where they were martyred, and following are just some ways in which history records how the disciples' martyrdom happened. The first apostle to be martyred, the brother of Apostle John, was Apostle James. He was preaching the gospel in Galilee and in Spain, and around the time of Passover in 44 AD, he became the first apostle to be beheaded at the order of Herod Agrippa I. Apostle Philip was preaching the gospel in Greece, Phrygia, and Syria, and was martyred on the cross around 54 AD in the city of Heropolis. Matthew, the tax collector, put together the gospel of Matthew as a disciple of Jesus and ministered in Parthia and Ethiopia, the region south of the Caspian Sea later being martyred in the streets by being pierced with spears. Peter's brother Andrew preached the gospel to many nations until around 70 AD when he was crucified in the city of Patras, being pierced by nails and spears. Nathaniel, who was also called Bartholomew, shared the gospel in Asia Minor, Armenia, and even Mesopotamia and India, and was martyred by being skinned alive. Thomas, also called Didymus, preached the gospel in Persia and India and was martyred in Madras, India by swords and spears. Simon, the Canaanian, who had the same name as Peter, preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in Egypt, Persia, Asia Minor, Northern Africa, and even the coasts of the Black Sea. He was martyred in Persia by being sawn in half. James, also known as James the Less, the brother of Matthew, was preaching the good news in Philistia and Egypt and was martyred by being stoned and sawn in half as well. Thaddeus, also called Jude, brother of James the Less, also was martyred on the cross. Matthias, who became one of the twelve in the place of Judas Iscariot, who sold Jesus, was preaching the gospel in Judea, Ethiopia, and Macedonia, and then was martyred by being beheaded in Ethiopia. And the stories of Peter, who was crucified upside down, and Paul, who was beheaded, are well known already. These disciples did not claim their right of self-defense, but followed the model of their teacher's sacrifice. They boldly and willingly gave their lives for Jesus. The values of Christians and the values of this world are different. The world says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus gave us a new set of values. In Matthew 5, 38 through 44, Jesus tells us, You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat too. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus was teaching us that we are to value others more than ourselves and to not seek revenge. Revenge belongs to God, and we are to leave the judgment to God as taught in Romans 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus Christ, who is the beginning of all things, came down to this world, dying on the cross, to show us his obedience to our Father in heaven. The disciples who followed him also willingly gave up their lives for Jesus Christ, and continuing in that tradition for the past 2,000 years, countless Christian brothers and sisters have given up their lives for the name of Jesus. Someday, when the day comes for us to give our lives for the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that we will be able to boldly give our lives up just as the disciples did, without hesitation. But in order for us to give our lives for His name on that day, we need to live for His name starting today. This is because those who don't live for Him can't die for Him either. The world is not worthy of those who live for Him and die for Him as well. Praying that we will all become people that the world is not worthy of, this was the final episode of The Voice of the Martyrs. God bless you.
What was the significance of the land of Canaan for the Israelites? It was a land that God had promised to their ancestor Abraham. It was a land that Joseph, who had saved them from a famine in Egypt, wanted to be buried in. It was a land that they had to return to. The land was their hope. Today, all of us here have their own land of Canaan to look forward to. However, can we all say that we have that mindset of Moses? The mindset that we will give up our own land of Canaan if God cannot be with us. Perhaps there are those of us who are just using God because we want to obtain what we hope for. Maybe there are some of us that feel if our goals are within our grasp, we do not really need God to come with us on our journey. But Moses knew. He knew that it was not about going into the land of Canaan or the successes that we can see with the human eye, but whether God was with him or not. Moses says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Is there anyone today who thinks this way? Even though you know that you will succeed any way going on the journey if God is not with us, do we also have the mindset and the faith to not go? Like Moses, let us be the ones who need God daily. I pray that you and I may experience God's presence and His grace every day. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless. Oh, God Almighty.